Warning. Explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's been a while, but we're back. My friend Andy Stashenko is back with me to discuss all the important ideas with me. Monkey Island, Jellyfish, Bonfire, The Vanities. We talk about Dagon, Lovecraft, Horror and Terror. Talk about Harry Potter versus Game of Thrones versus Hamlet. We talk about journalism and James Foley. Basically, I have a ton of questions about the world, and we attempt to answer some of them. So, as always, this episode is brought to you by the world-famous Tortuga Soap Company. All the things you need to keep you looking and smelling good. Use the discount code PODCAST and get 20% off. Also brought to you by We Are Dapper Ties. Quality knit ties at an affordable price. Enter the discount code ROLL and get free shipping. And if you're in the market for some handmade jewelry, make sure you check out beautytobeast.etsy.com. Enter the discount code RIDDLER and get 10% off. So hopefully this episode encourages you to go out and learn about something or someone you don't know anything about already. Go and get out of your comfort zone. Just get better. And you can do that by listening to some of the other podcasts on this network, Red Wing Superior Podcast Network. The Muse Podcast, News of Our Demise, For the Love of Film, Wouldn't It Be Cool, Great Northeast BJJ Podcast. Make sure you go check some of those things out, learn something. Keep fighting the good fight, people. Thanks for listening. Peace. Tell us the story. Start over with right, the story right. about Monkey Island. All right, Andrea, I got to tell you about Monkey Island. There's a place in South Carolina in my home state. It's called Monkey Island. And it's called Monkey Island because there's hundreds of monkeys on the island. They're rhesus monkeys from India, which means they're like this tall. Like they're taller than my hips. They'll come up to my, to my chest here. So... Nobody really believes that the monkeys are on the island, but the, I've seen them before. When you get to the island, there are signs that say, do not feed the animals. And it doesn't say monkeys on purpose because uh, the monkeys are owned by the government and they don't want anyone to know that there's actually monkeys on the island. So they just say, do not feed the animals. So I know about this because my friends live close to there and you can kayak from their house to the monkey island. So when I got to Monkey Island, we went in a kayak, and it took us 30 minutes to get there. Not a lot. Not a lot, right? So we got to the island, and we got onto the shore, and there was nothing there. We were like, man, there really aren't any monkeys on this island. We had a big basket filled with food. We had shrimp. We had strawberries. We had bananas. We had bread. Anything a monkey could want. So we got to the island and we were like, oh, wow, this is so disappointing. There are no monkeys on the island. And we were like, well, let's just see what happens. So I took a strawberry and I threw it from my kayak onto the shore and it landed on the shore. And after like 30 seconds, I heard a rustling in the woods and a monkey came out like this. And he went up to the strawberry and he started eating it and he made a noise. And then all of a sudden, like 50 monkeys jumped out of the trees and they ran onto the shore, and there were these little monkeys that were getting picked up by the big monkeys and thrown out of the way <laughs> because we were trying, you know, we were at that point just chunking everything. We were chunking sh- 
cook shrimp to these monkeys and they were grabbing it and eating it and they were making this incredible din, this ridiculous noise. And they were just like, they looked like, I don't know, but they were all jumping onto the piles of food and like eating it and just taking a banana and literally shoving it into their mouths and chomping on it like a chainsaw and there were chunks of food flying out of their mouths. And we were thought it was really funny. Are you supposed to be on the island? No, you're not supposed to be on the island. It's called Morgan Island. Yeah. Is it a true story? Yeah, it's a true story. Yeah. The monkeys are there because the government brought them to have a stock of monkeys to send like to the CDC whenever they need some monkey for an experiment. And you know they test like cosmetics on animals too, okay. so maybe there are other purposes. But the urban legends are, this is in Beaufort, South Carolina. So the urban legends say that when there's a hurricane in Beaufort, the monkeys have actually like washed up on shore downtown. They've gotten blown from the island into the city and they'll like walk around downtown and like jump in a tree and you know, somebody will, some agent will have to come corral this monkey and bring it back to the island or it just, you know, disappears into somebody's house and you know, maybe they sell it on the black market or somebody gets served monkey stew. It's like Men in Black where they got to come and make you look at the thing and erase your memory of what you've seen the monkey. Exactly. So hopefully they don't hear this because they're going to erase yeah. your memory. Yeah, I could get arrested. It's a federal. Really? It was a federal offense for me to be there. <laughs> well, we'll all know. <laughs> they all know. So you went to the island, but they didn't come out when you were on it. Not at first. Because they were afraid. Technically, we actually were in our kayaks. Oh, you never got out. We never stepped foot on shore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we still probably broke the law because we were in a certain proximity sure. to it. Yeah. Um, my uncle was in a kayak one time, like, when the bushes were in uh, at the bush compound in Kennebunkport. Mm. And he got too close to the thing, and the Secret Service came over. and In a boat? Yeah. In a boat, they almost capsized they almost dumped kayak. Them. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. they went right they, I'm sure they were purposely aggressive. Oh, yeah. They wanted him out of there. Yeah. It's also my uncle, so you don't know him, but he's not. Um, Is he a crazy dude? He's a little, you know, I and I would say probably antagonized him possibly in a in a subtle way. I see. Possibly. Um, you say I subtle, but. He didn't but even know that that was the Bush's compound, right? He knew. He knew. Of course he did. Uh, but he was in the water. But there was a wedding there that day, I guess. And mm. so they were all there. So, like, normally you could go through there. But uh, they had buoys out, you know, signifying that you couldn't go. And he ignored the buoys uh, and went for it. Okay. And he was not happy. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. He's on the list somewhere. Is your uncle, does he live around here? He does. Your whole family is very Dover. Much, very much so. Yeah. Except Nana. She lives in Ossipi. Yeah. Okay. That's it's still true. just a stone's throw away. Where do your parents live? Columbia, South Carolina. How close to that is Buford? Uh, it's like three hours. Oh, really? So, yeah. This is me visiting some friends. Uh, what You were just in I Columbia. Was, I was in Columbia and Charleston. Working at the brewery? Working at a brewery, bartending, surfing, um, chasing 23-year-old girls. <laughs> How old are you, though? You're not that old. No, I'm 30. Yeah. So I'm at the point where, like, I could go older or I could go younger, you yeah. know? 
What, uh, how was the surfing? It was good. Did you surf a lot? I used to when I was in college, because you could just throw your surfboard in the back of a truck and get there. It's not like when you go skiing and you have to buy all their equipment and your clothes and your board or your skis. What kind of ocean-dwelling creatures are? They're sharks. Yeah. Yeah, but the sharks are only blue belts. Yeah. Um, they're sharks. <laughs> and that's really it. Like there's, what kind there's, of actually there's jelly there's jellyfish. Yeah, one time there was um like the conditions were ripe for jellyfish breeding or something. And there were thousands and thousands of jellyfish like in the shore off Charleston. So there was this advisory, this countywide advisory, and they were like, Don't go to the beach because if you go to the beach you're gonna get stung by a jellyfish. So my friend and I went and we were like, All right, so we're gonna leave when one of us gets stung three times. No. So I got stung zero times. Oh, nice. He got stung three times in 15 minutes. Oh. And on the third time, he ran out of the he ran out of the beach, out of the water, screaming, and fell on his knees in the sand and went, ah, my leg. And I was in the water, you know, chuckling. I was like, I guess, you know, it's time for us to go. And I'm no worse for the wear. <laughs> did you pee on him? I did, yeah. <laughs> did you really? Yeah. I heard that's a uh, urban legend. Folklore. But everybody does it. Yeah, everybody does it. Um, you know, the lifeguards, they have vinegar right. if you get stung. But one time I was at Myrtle Beach with a family that I didn't know very well. And the little boy got stung by a jellyfish. So his dad took him in the shower. He's like, come here, son. I'm going to fix this for you. Oh, no. That kid's scarred for life. Right? He's like six or seven years old. His dad took him to shower and peed on his leg. He's been peed on. He's been peed on. By his dad. Right? With some payback. Right? Messed him up, man. It's like, um, I'm sure his dad know, got peed he, on he has something in common with R. Kelly's victims now. Yeah. He could go to that support group. He's got PTSD. He does. It's fine. What does. kind of jellyfish are these? Do you know? I don't know. Is there, a different, is there a lot of different kinds? Yes. There are. Andrea, what do you know about jellyfish? Uh, I know that they glow in the dark. Oh, at the aquarium, yeah. yeah, yeah when do. you see them, they got the, hey, like the black light school, on them. no school lab. I did summer school. You had jellyfish at school? No. Like a movie? We had a video uh, of a jellyfish, a squid, which I'm going to eat soon. Really? Uh, yeah. Andrew's favorite thing is squid to eat. She likes calamari. How, really? Yeah. You, you did. I saw you eat calamari at the brewery. Yes, you did. Don't look at me with that Portsmouth confused Portsmouth Brewery face. when we were all there last time. Yeah. You had calamari. You had calamari. She loves calamari. She <laughs> likes the crispiness. Um, No, yeah. she likes the calamari part. Yes. She yeah. picks off the breading. Yeah. Has she ever eaten a... Uh, Sushi roll with, with squid on it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think so. Has she ever had sushi? No. No. Uh, I tried to get her to eat it. She hasn't yet. Ew. There. It will it will happen soon. So how big are the waves in South Carolina where you're surfing? They're not that big, yep. but we often have hurricanes. So when a hurricane Like gets, right now. Yeah, like Hurricane Florence. Yeah. Yeah. Every year, you know, people that I know get screwed over. So what do you mean? Uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that live on the beach. So there's two things that are happening. One is that the um, 
you know, the sand is falling. It's a combination of erosion and climate change. Yeah. You know, the, the sea level is rising while there is erosion happening. So the, the sand is falling into the beach and the water is reclaiming the land. There's actually a famous uh, landmark where I live called the Morris Island Lighthouse. And in the 19th century, the lighthouse was, you know, on the, on the coast. But now the lighthouse is, you know, half submerged. So if Year round, all the time? Year round, yeah. So when, if you're brave, you know, you can take a kayak out to the Morris Island Lighthouse and there's scaffolding that you can jump on and, you know, you can kind of peek in the windows or whatever. But, um, yeah, you've got those two things going on and, uh, you know. So a tangible, a like, damage and so it's a tangible, like. Oh, absolutely. Evidence. Absolutely. 100%. Of, of changing climate. Absolutely. Yeah. But to get back to your point about the waves, oh yeah, the waves are not normally big, but we have hurricanes. And when there's a hurricane in Georgia or North Carolina, you're going to surf in South Carolina. When there's a hurricane in South Carolina, you're going to surf in Georgia or North Carolina. And that's when the that's when the conditions get really good. Snow alligators? There are lots of alligators. Yeah. Yeah. Every year, some woman like on a golf course gets her arm bitten off by an alligator, or some dog disappears, and you know they. A couple years later, they find the alligator with the stuff with the skeleton in its stomach or whatever. So yeah, there's tons of tons of them. Like in the wild, you see them roaming around. Yeah, well, they're curated. They're like you know they bring them onto golf courses or parks and stuff. And when you're, they like, bring them. Oh, to trap yeah. them or something. Well, they're just there. You yeah. know, like you'll go and you'll see the. Do not feed the alligator sign on the golf courses. And it's just normally if you don't bother them, if you don't get close to the water, then there's nothing to be worried about. Usually somebody loses something or the dog, you know, goes off to inspect it. You know, they rarely approach you. Alligators do not swim in the ocean, right? That's crocodiles? Or are they both do that? Um, I don't think... Either of them swim in the ocean, but I know one of them can swim in brackish water. Right. And I'm not sure which one that is. I think it might be crocodiles. We see more dolphins than anything else. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, the place I'm telling you about, Beaufort, there's a place called Frith Island. That's um, also on the intercoastal waterway. Uh, it's a private island. I've got a, some friends that own a house there. And they do paddleboarding rentals. So there's a marsh there. And you can go to their shop and get on the dock and rent a paddleboard and take a big circular loop uh, back to the dock. And the loop is in the marsh connected to the ocean, so it's all brackish. And usually when you do this, uh, you can see the dolphins. And you can always tell because the fin comes out briefly and it will um, drop back down. So that's how they travel. Sea turtles? Mm-hmm. Loggerhead sea turtle, I think, is South Carolina's state um, amphibian. And there's a big movement to protect them. So you have these sites on the beach that are blocked off by, like, you know, caution tape. Right. And it's because it's a loggerhead nest, the loggerhead eggs. If the tape wasn't there, then you might step on the nest and break the eggs. So there's a certain time of year where... You know, the South Carolina Aquarium and other, like, sea turtle advocacy groups are really prominent. 
and they will go to the beach and you, they actually have volunteers to where when these turtles hatch, you can be there with them and they're going to try and get to the water. Yeah. And if they get turned around, you pick them up and you point them in the right direction, which is really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've, we've released sea turtles, baby sea turtles in Mexico. Did you just do that on your trip? Yep. That's awesome. Andrea did. We all, I mean, we all did. That's awesome. Yeah. Did you walk with them to the water? We brought them down and put them in the nice. Put them in the ocean. Nice. Yeah. Um, so what did you do for? You, you worked at the bar. Yeah. I studied for my doctoral exams. What is the doctoral exam? It's where you read. This is to, to get into the program? No, I'm already to, in. You're into the PhD yeah, program. Yeah, you're doing this for your professional future. So, you know, I don't know how much you know about, like, how the faculty structure at the university works. But, you know, you're judged based on your ability to produce viable professional research. So in order to do that, right, you can't just do that out of thin air. You have to develop a foundation for that. Because when you're a professor, you're not really just there to teach. Not at all. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, unfortunately, your teaching is subordinated to your research. I mean, it depends on what type of institution you're at. But most of the time, you know, you're there because you produced some sort of field-enriching research that brought prominence to the university or that... Um, you know, advance some sort of significant cause. So you don't do that out of thin air. You'll have to um, read many books in your field and particularly in your subfield, right? If you were, you know, a cancer researcher, you wouldn't just read haphazardly about cancer. You would pick a specific type of issue within, um, you know, specific type of issue related to cancer, cancer and then you would read all that. And your research would be about cancer, but it would be a narrow aspect of, you know, cancer prevention or, um, you know, something that has to do with uh, biological conditions that cause cancer or something else that's narrow within the field. So that's where I'm at right now. I'm narrowing my focus. What, I, do you have an idea of what we're narrowing yeah. to? I'm reading about the genre characteristics of uh, revenge tragedy. So... You must have read Hamlet when you were right. in high school. You must have read... Um, there are other plays, too. Uh, there's a play called The Spanish Tragedy by Thomas Kidd, and it was the most popular play in the Elizabethan era in Shakespeare's day. And in this play, there are you know tons of like grotesque, gory murders. There's a guy, his son gets hanged because his son is uh, chosen by the princess to be her lover. And the upper class aristocrats, they don't want to have any of that. So they t take him out of the way and he uh, sues for justice, doesn't get it. So he goes on this one man rampage against the court and he kills uh, the prince, the prince's best friend and one of the dukes. And then he kills himself. But before he kills himself, he cuts out his tongue and spits it out on stage so that uh, he will know he will not be required or forced to confess or to detail his crimes. And this appealed to people because it was an age of unfairness, you know. The legal systems were 
intertwined with this sort of aristocratic system of privilege. And if you were a nobleman, you could skirt the law, you could bend the law to your will. And um, this was also, I don't know how much you know about religion in this period, but you ever heard of Calvinism? Right. Yeah, so in Calvinism, you are predestined to either go to heaven or go to hell. And nothing that you do on earth will change this. So people looked at both the earthly justice system and the um, heavenly justice system and saw that it was uh, deeply unfair. And they resonated with these plays like Hamlet or the Spanish tragedy in which a figure who is um, heroic because they stand up and take revenge against these systems that seem to so bleakly control or, and dispossess, you know, an individual person. So if you were predestined to go to hell, what would be the point of uh, behaving? There is none. Well, there is none. Right. Absolutely none. And that's why uh, people, you know, that's why Calvinism died out because it was totally hopeless. I mean, you know. Seems like it wasn't really that well thought out. Yeah. If I'm, you want to people to behave i'm not a religious scholar but i do know that john calvin he um had a colony in geneva switzerland and he ran this colony with an iron fist he was an autocrat and a despotic person you know who demanded obedience from his followers and you know had this sort of unequivocal notion of truth and, you know, luckily we've gone away. From, those things are less present in our modern day because we have more knowledge and we can look at history through a retrospective lens and see that, you know, most often people that deal in absolutes are inflexible and power hungry and what have you. So you're back at UNH now teaching. Yeah. Taking classes. Yeah. What are you teaching? teaching an English composition, so it's just English, introductory English class that you probably took, right? I'm not sure if I took that one yeah. or not. It's very possible, though. I think you did, man, because uh, you told me is, about your, well, this your, is your not, English teacher at UNH. Th so this is, is this 401? Yeah. All right, I did take yeah, it. Yeah, you took 401. Yeah, I did. Yep. Uh, I took a lot of English classes because I want, was thinking about becoming an English major at one time. Yeah, um, I think that's awesome. I took early American literature. Uh, that one stands out to me. Did you read Phyllis Wheatley? This, mm. She was a slave who Maybe. wrote poetry. Maybe. And I remember we read Willa Cather. Willa Cather. Yeah. yeah, that's early 20th century American literature. She's like a author that writes about the frontier. Yeah. Um, for some reason, that she stands out to me. But What did um, you read? Did you read Death Comes to the Archbishop? It does not sound familiar mm. to me, but... Maya Antonia? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. Maya Antonia, right? Something like Something that. Like yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what classes are you taking? None. I'm just Oh, I thought you were taking. Reading. Oh. Yeah. I'm just reading, writing, studying. So what do we teach? What do you what is your goal to teach the fine students of English 401? Like what do you try to get them to learn yeah. or understand or whatever by the time it's over? I want them not to embarrass themselves first and foremost. <laughs> but When they come in, 
you know, they have a basic level of skill, right? Because they did learn valuable stuff in high school, but they don't really know how to delve deeply into um, a topic and they don't really know how to deeply analyze. And part of this is looking at individual words and phrases in a text and expounding on individual words. So this is a process that's pretty important because it teaches you that, you know, there are things beneath the surface that are interesting, informative, that are valuable. And it's also a process by which, you know, you can get online and you can read some crappy article on Fox News or Huffington Post. And there's such a very superficial level of, uh, you know, the, the article is written superficially, the analysis is superficial, Everything is just on the surface. But if you look at a text and you try and think about, okay, what does this word mean, right? The author used this word creatively. It's not conventional. Why did they do that? Then that opens up to other connections. Well, what's the author's relationship to his audience? What pre-consisting notions does the author have about this topic? And you can continue to go from, you know, that simple question that was prompted by a word choice to, six other questions that delineate the scope of an issue in a much more um, sophisticated and intricate way than you would have known if you didn't pay attention to that one word. So it's not always that like the author is putting in like, you know, hidden messages. No. But that, ha but that does, like, does sort of, people use. Absolutely. Like, um, have you ever read Hemingway, um, the, his World War I novel? Oh, Jesus, I just blanked on the We might have talked about it before. The Sun Also Rises? Uh, or? No, the one with Frederick Henry. Um, um, I don't think I have anyway. But. Well, I mean, in that novel, rain is always a symbol for death. Yeah. And that's deliberate, right? That's obvious. Just like the setting sun is a symbol for death. But in many other... In the bell tolls? Yeah, that's it. For him, the bell tolls. So he used that. Absolutely. Intentionally. There's a scene in the novel where his girlfriend, Catherine, is like, oh, I don't like the rain. You know, like the rain, is, it brings me like a bad feeling. And he's like, oh, don't worry about the rain. But there's another scene where he's outside and he's, he's I think he's deserting his army and it begins to rain. And then she, his, at the end of the novel, his girlfriend dies in childbirth. And the rain comes, you know, the last scene of the novel is him walking. She's just died in the hospital and he goes out of the hospital and walks home in the rain. So it's like the rain is a constant presence, just like, you know, misfortune or tenuous circumstance or obstacles in life are also a constant present. You know, they're going to come and go just like the rain. And that's deliberate. But you're saying that... Um, you know, it's not always that right. these symbols and clues are deliberate. We often read texts through the lens of our particular particular cultural moment. So right now, you know, you have like everybody is interested in gender and sexuality. So if you have somebody who's writing a text in 1524, they're not thinking about gender and sexuality. But there are scholars who are uh, writing about that who are going back into this text and explaining, hey, this old text 
has these attitudes about gender and sexuality and we've evolved from this, we can look back at this and learn this or that or whatever else. Is that why, so say, you know, there's a big, I may be simplifying this, but there's a big... I'll simplify it too. Good, good. There's a big push like that says, you know... Don't waste your money going to school. Don't, you know, it's a waste just getting a trade because that's where the jobs are. Yeah. Is this an argument to why you should go to college or, you know, to, and take, why, why this, because this is a required class, right? To graduate? For English 401. For everybody? Yeah. Everybody has to take everybody, this class. Every student at UNH. Every single one. Why should everybody take this class? Well, you're talking about the trades, the relationship between the trades and the university. And just like any question that's worth answering, you can't answer it in yes or no. If you want to go into the trades and get a good job and get paid money and not take on debt, that's awesome. You should do that. But when you go to the university and you are immersed in the best that's ever been thought, right? You go to an English class and you read the best that's ever been, the best that's ever been written and you think with the greatest minds that have ever thought and you learn to uh, develop your own voice, develop your own consciousness, develop a level of intellectual autonomy that allows you to perceive the world in a more nuanced way. It gives you a sense of security, a sense of comfort. It gives you the ability to respond to conflict. Because I don't know if you remember from your third grade English class, you know, all literature must have a conflict. So all literature is sort of like pop psychology, right? Where you're seeing examples of how people have responded to conflict and what has happened since then. Did these responses to familial issues or cultural dissonance or war work out for this particular character and what can I learn from that? I mean, that's, that's, you know, equally valuable as learning a trade because it becomes part of you. You're going to need to be able to read and write as part of your trade or at least as part of your life. Absolutely. Anyway. So, but I wouldn't begrudge anybody for choosing not to go to the university, you know, like if you just want to go and start making money, you know, everything that's available to you in the university, you can also get on your own, right? If you choose to read, if you choose to enroll in open courseware, it's just whether or not you want it, you know, and culture today conditions you not to want it, right? You go and you look at your phone and you scroll, I'm, you know, bring up my phone like this. And all I need to do in order to look at the news is to swipe twice, right? right? And everything that has, everything that the powers that be would want me to think is right there. You know, I'm not allowed to develop my own original response to stimuli because I am uh, continually exposed to like these previous responses that are put out by, you know, groups with an agenda like Fox News or the Huffington Post or whoever. Do you guys in your class or, you know, talk about the First Amendment? Uh, no, we don't. The freedom of press and... No, we don't. I thought that that would be an interesting... I actually thought about designing a class like that, that um, was kind of like a civic class where we looked at 
the amendments and sort of the rhetoric of the amendments right. because English 401 is a rhetoric class. It's about argument. What's the author's position? What are the emotional appeals that the author uses to, um, you know, make their point? And I thought that like revolutionary literature would be a good example of that because it's very clear cut as to what the author's position is and the emotional appeals are there. But I didn't get deep into that. I, I went and developed a different different course. I mean, this is a huge thing, right? For not the First Amendment, or maybe it is, but most people talking right now about the Second Amendment, which Guns. is very short. And um, and what did they mean by it? Right. You know what I mean? That's the, I mean, that is the debate right, right now, right? Is what they meant by, you know, we have the right to bear arms and right. have a well-formed militia. Yeah. And what... You know, I feel like the two sides are debating about what the intention was over that. Right. It's true. You know, when that was written, it was written by a group of statesmen who had an interest, a vested interest in um, maintaining a militia because we were under threat from our colonial masters in Great Britain. So obvious, I think that when they wrote it, you know, they were intending to make sure that male citizens were ready to join a militia and guard their towns against the British. Um, you know, this goes back to this debate over, you have different types of Supreme Court justices, those that believe that the Constitution is a fixed entity, that originalism, what's written. The um, Federalists, right? Is that the Federalists? I think they're, I think they're called originalists. Oh, yeah? All right. This is like a... Um, an ideological persuasion in like judicial thinking. You know, the words on the Constitution are inexorable and we should preserve their original meaning because that original meaning has, you know, held true throughout, you know, 300 years. And then you have other people who think that the, um, you know, times have changed. It's a living, breathing document. Right. It's an organism that we must evolve to fit our needs so hence amendments and right exactly because really originally the the clash between the two sides of federalists and anti-federalists they they you know the amendments weren't a part of it only to get the other people to sign off on the constitution i believe hmm. I don't know much about it, so if there's something that you want to educate me, I don't know. Educate me, I don't go know, ahead. But I mean, I think that's just that they're not really a part. It's not even. I mean, it is. It's amendments to the Constitution. It's not the Constitution itself. Um, I believe. Yes. But so, where does any you guys don't talk about like fake news, right? Or indirectly, we do because we're looking at. Arguments, you know, and all arguments are based, you know, are designed to persuade you. So we're looking at what makes an argument good and what makes an argument bad. We're looking at credibility of sources. We're looking at, you know, the ways that uh, authors of arguments attempt to manipulate readers. So we, even though we don't talk about fake news directly, we're talking about the skills that would allow somebody to differentiate between a flimsy, biased, um, ideologically driven source and a source that's, you know, measured, objective, or effective in another particular way. 
So today, like in the, you know, in the age of your phone and getting the news off it, yeah. How do you uh, how do you gauge the source? It's really hard, you know, because every source is biased. Um, I feel like you need to read multiple sources. You need to acknowledge the biases that are out there and combine them in order to try and figure out. It's kind of like uh, you know the truth is in the middle situation. And nobody does this, but I think one of the best things to do would be, and people don't do this because it's hard, you know, I don't even do this. You get off your phone and you look at like some economics journal, right? Do you want to know whether or not how inflated Trump's claims about the economy are? Well, in order to really understand that, you would have to go back into, you know, the economics journal and read the research there, look at patterns and statistics and compare it to, you know, what was going on in Obama's administration. And then you would have to determine the individual level of, um, of influence that each of those figures had in, the, uh, in those time periods. So it takes so much work to be, to be accurate and to be informed. And we don't do that because these talking points are parroted at us through a variety of different ways. And sometimes it's not even that hard because if you take, for example, um, the other day, Elon Musk smoking, smoking a blunt with oh, Joe Rogan. Oh, God, I didn't see that, but I want, I want to hear about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, he smoked a blunt with Joe Rogan on, on his podcast. Yeah? And so what happened? What did they talk about? I, I don't know. I didn't listen to it yet. And I'm usually, I'm, I'm like a... I'm interested in Elon yeah. Musk generally Me too, and so I like him. Yeah, so but he had caused some issues recently with um, saying that he wanted to buy back his stock, so his so Tesla wasn't or what you know his company wasn't public anymore. So he smoked a blunt, and then some of his board of directors resigned because he smoked. I don't know if it was because of that or not. You know, Jesus, but. Um, and then, so if you looked on Facebook that day, you know, one half of Facebook said, oh, he just, you know, crushed, Tesla's crushed, you know, from smoking this or, or you know, and then, but then, you know, you look at it and the other half is saying not, much like Nike, the Nike thing. Right. Right. So the, the um, Colin Kaepernick, um, you have one half of Facebook saying, you know, not this is going to crush Nike and their stock price was down. And then the, the, you know, the other half of the people I know are like, this is going to be the, this is the best thing. Like everybody's buying Nike now, you know? And so, but you could easily look up the Nike price and mm-hmm. see, you know, but I don't know if people even want to do that kind of like legwork. It's so crazy. Um, I don't, I try not to be on Facebook. It's probably it's, good. It's very unhealthy. It's very, I think it dehumanizes people, you know, because you interact with somebody on Facebook. You're not really interacting with a person. You're acting, interacting with a two-dimensional avatar of a person. And it's, uh, you know, even when you're in real life and you see people that you disagree with, like, it's easy to find something that you respect about them because they're in front of you with their three-dimensional presence, you know. And, you know, whatever that thing that you respect is, is naturally out there in the open. But when you get on Facebook and it's like somebody is a liberal, somebody is a conservative, somebody is, you know, has this point of view or that point of view. And that's all you see. 
So I feel like the best part about Facebook is now Instagram. You know, you just get to share stories and pictures and maintain connections. You don't really get to get dragged into this sort of lowest common denominator, uh, time-wasting argument stuff. Yeah, Instagram is not, is it's it is leaned now a little bit towards that a bit, yeah. but it's definitely like better. It's like a nice magazine, just like with only pictures. Yeah, you know, and that's really what we want. Right. I don't want to. I don't. I mean, the, some of the memes are pretty funny. There's you know like, but um, so how do people learn? Do can people learn to like figure this stuff out for themselves? The truth. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's different for everybody. Is there one know? truth or is there more than one truth? Oh, there's got to be more than one, right? There's no one right way to live. Maybe there are multiple harmonious truths. <laughs> I don't know. There are multiple harmonious truths. And if you find one, then you will be in harmony with someone that finds another one. Right. And you can collaborate. The truth, the truth for you might be different than the truth for me. Yeah. But you could respect mine and I could respect yours. Right. Yeah. But what if, like, what if if you were, like, say we both were at an event. Yeah. Like, some kind of a thing happened. Okay. Well, let's talk about where we are. Where are we? Are we at the the school bus demolition derby at the Rochester Fair or ah, somewhere ah, are we somewhere more right. sophisticated no we're at Rochester we're at the Rochester we're at Fair Rochester Fair we're at the Rochester watching Fair watching one school bus back into another school yeah. bus at 25 miles an hour so somebody wins right I guess and somebody and everybody else loses I think right. I don't really know if this is how it goes I think everybody wins everybody probably because everybody gets to see that and it's entertaining it's pretty ridiculous um but if say that you know there's a race of the school bus thing, or there's only one bus left standing. Okay. I mean, the truth is that that's the only bus that was left standing, right? I guess. That's that's yeah. not really debatable, or is it? You think debatable? Can like, we debate that? What's what do we debate about? I don't know. Like who won? Oh. Who won the thing? Does it matter? Matters to the person that won, yeah. probably. Okay. Yeah, you know? it does matter to the person that won. The person that won probably wants you to know that they won. That they dominated the school yeah. bus. Uh, Maybe they have a medal with the uh, picture of the bus. Yeah, you know? something, you know. Um, I got thinking about this because I believe Rudy Giuliani got in trouble in the last, you know, or not trouble, but, you know, there was, there was a talk about, because he said... I, I believe he's the counsel. He, yeah, he's Donald Trump's personal lawyer now. Right. And so he was talking about something Trump, you know, some of this Russian thing or something. And he said the truth is not always the truth or something. Right, right, right. Yeah, the truth is not always the truth. Uh, can the truth not always... And, and this is not even political, right? I mean, I'm just... Can the truth not always be the truth? Let me think. It's interesting because, you know, truth is, maybe it depends on your vantage point, but you got to consider the source too, you know. Right. Rudy Giuliani saying that is a, is different than There's a, a reason, philosopher right. who's talking about, you know, 
multiple facets to truth and individual experience. So, someone's know. legal counsel saying it. Yeah, yeah. No matter who, they're they're saying it for a reason. Absolutely, for their client. Absolutely. I can't believe how much that guy has changed, or maybe he didn't change in the past fifteen or twenty years. You know, I remember admiring him. You know in 9-11 and now like he's just like a circus act or something you know i don't know what happened to him seems like there's a lot of circus act you yeah know, at the moment for sure yeah like um every everything about i feel like about our god like government and on both sides even like it's it's gone lower like everybody has gone lower right to like to to prove that they're right. It's not like they're going higher to prove they're right. I don't feel like. Yeah. Like, but that's my opinion. There's something interesting to think about when you think about the relationship between fiction and truth. Because in a lot of ways, fiction is as true as truth. Because even though a certain character in a book didn't really exist, right? The thing that that character faced is real. So if you want to talk about political corruption... Have you ever heard of uh, Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray? I don't know. He was a contemporary of Charles Dickens. Yeah. So he wrote the same type of literature that Dickens wrote. It was a 19th century Victorian era, social class oriented, sort of these sprawling cityscapes with an ensemble cast of characters who were all occupying different levels of power. And he wrote about how you know, his main character was really like the social structure, right? He showed it based on these relationships between characters. And in this book, there's a character named Pitt Crowley. He's, a, he's like a parliamentarian. And he takes this young, ambitious girl under his wing and teaches her how to abuse power. And he says, what's the use of having power if you don't abuse it? And this, this chick, Becky Sharp, learns things from him and she sort of goes off on her own journey but even though that didn't happen, right, this character didn't exist, this book gives you a pattern in which you can recognize what you see in the real world when you see the same thing happening. Have you ever read The Grapes of Wrath? I haven't. This is a book I'm thinking about reading. Mm. It's up next, maybe, on the okay. list of books. Can I give you a recommendation? Sure. Did you ever hear of um, a book by Tom Wolfe called Bonfire of the Vanities? Yeah. Did you ever read that no, or see the movie? No. It's really I, good. But Tom Hanks was in it, I believe, right? And Bruce Willis. Right. It was like one of the most expensive movies ever. Really? And it totally flopped uh, at the box office yeah. because it was just a piece of hot garbage. The book was a huge seller. They picked all the best actors. And then something about the movie, like it just sucked. But this book is really interesting because it's very similar to Vanity Fair or a Dickens novel, but it's set in 1980s New York. So everything that you see in the Dickens novel where you have like, you know, an orphan close to the street or, you know, a noble, uh, a family outside of the uh, aristocrats trying to maneuver their way into power or, you know, dueling um, families with a grudge against each other. All that stuff is in this Tom Wolfe book, but it's in a time period and a linguistic idiom that you can recognize. So there are like 
special rights groups for minorities who take this court case. And even though, you know, they're in the right in the court case, they push it farther in order to advance their agenda. There's a super rich guy who's out of touch with reality and thinks that he's going to be um, saved based on his political and social position. Um, it's a pretty amazing, amazing book. And it's extremely entertaining. Absolutely. It's really long, but you just breeze through it because right. it's so rich. I'll check it out. Yeah, Bonfire of the Vanities. The It's like, so the Grapes of Wrath, right? Are, uh, you know, it's about the Dust Bowl and mm -hmm. uh, this family going to California from mm -hmm. Oklahoma. And the Jodes, right? The Jodes, right? Yeah, the Jodes. And so Bruce Springsteen a while ago wrote a song, The Ghost of Tom Joe. Okay. Which I've heard that song. Yeah, so, and then yeah. Rage Against the Machine, I think, you know, did a version of okay. it. Okay. It's very applicable to that, you know, era of immigration and things, of, you know, like that. And this is the 30s, right? This yeah. Is the depression. Right, right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, labor. Um, Did you know that they say that the 20s and 30s were one of the high water years for racism? Like it was one of the most racist time periods. This was when, um, I don't know if people, people don't really know this now. But America, we had colonies in, uh, the, in the Pacific. The Philippines were our colonies. And I think the word gook came out of wars that America fought in the Philippines. There was a Philippine insurrection. And we sent troops over there to like maintain peace in the villages and stuff. And they wanted their independence. So there were these guerrilla forces that would like attack American patrols and they would do like typical savage shit, like right. stab knives in the genitals and stuff. So the Americans would retaliate and they would, you know, each side would dehumanize each other and then we'd get the word gook. So where did the word gook come from? I don't know. Oh, right. I don't know how, how <laughs> right. it evolved, but that's where it came from. But was this also the time where everybody was in the Ku Klux Klan? And it was like huge, and the politicians were, and they were marching. I think that was a little later. Later. But this was the time, it was, you know, several decades after Darwin, mm -hmm. and people were thinking about evolution, and they were trying to rank the races. Yeah. So I don't know if you know about, um, I forget the name of the science, but there was a science where it was like a, you know, now we know that it was like a pseudoscience, but they would look at shapes of people's skulls huh. and they would be, they would order these shapes according to like which skull had the most perfect ratio. So there's a monkey skull and then there's like the skulls of, you know, different races. Like, okay, here's the skull of the black guy. Here's the skull of the Asian guy. And then the white guy has What's the, the perfect skull. Right, he's got the perfect skull. So you have these, um, ideologies running amok and people are using it to like sort of justify colonialism so you have even belgium is in the congo and they're killing congolese people and taking the rubber in order to use for tanks and you know airplanes that are going to be used in world war one so the reason that i thought of this was just because of a passage in the great gatsby if you remember the great gatsby um, Gatsby's nemesis, Tom Buchanan, is reading one of these pseudoscience books. And he says, hey, you know, have you read this book about, like, the how the mongoloids take over the white race or something like that? So, you know, you, you see in the news, like, 
oh, everything is terrible. You know, there's so much disunity, but we've come a long way. Right. We've come a really long way. Which, who was Tom Buchanan in that? He was Daisy's husband. All right. Yeah. He right. was the guy who's pissed off at Gatsby because Gatsby is new money. Yeah. Gatsby's a bootlegger. He calls him a dirty bootlegger. And he's this sort of like blue-blooded polo player. Right. Yeah. I mean, Gatsby was kind of a scammer, right? Definitely. Right. Yeah. You know, Gatsby was a war veteran, though, too. Right. 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 Yeah. He came back with nothing but his uniform. And he expected to be afforded a place in society and some respect, and he didn't get it. So he turned to making moonshine with uh, Meyer Wolfsham, the guy who fixed the 1919 World Series. Yeah. And um, the Black Sox. Yeah, the Black Sox. So I've got a friend that um, loves The Great Gatsby, but he, I don't think he's ever actually read it. So he has seen the movies yep. with Leo DiCaprio, right? And it's all partying, and he right. loves like the partying, but he doesn't know that Gatsby is, uh, you know, a tragic story about the failure of the American dream. It's about a veteran who likely has PTSD, and it's about like a materialistic culture that prevents and warps emotional connections between people. Hmm. So I gave him the book, and I don't think he ever actually read it. <laughs> Who wrote the cat? Who wrote Gatsby? It's F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, yeah. 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 Now, the last time you and I talked, who did we talk about? Who showed Hemingway his penis? It was Fitzgerald. All right. He, he went into a closet with Hemingway and asked Hemingway if it was big enough. And Hemingway was like, yeah, it's regular. You know, <laughs> like, learn. Hemingway was obviously an expert. I, I guess. Apparently. I mean, he's a man's, a man's man, whatever that means. So all these guys that well, so Hemingway was a like a war correspondent. He was he was a war correspondent in World War One, um, and he actually may have also been an ambulance driver. Right, I, th I think that's yeah. actually he was I, an ambulance driver. I think, uh, he may right. have been a war correspondent later, but right. he was definitely an ambulance driver, and he got wounded, I think, and had to recover in some hospital for a while. But that's like he drew on his own experience when he wrote for whom the the bell tolls. It seems like a lot of these guys, a lot of like good literature and art, has sprung out of war. Yeah. I mean, you know, the first great work of literature is predicated on war. You know, the Iliad, right. the Odyssey. You know, this is where canonized literature starts, and it's about the war between the Greeks and the Romans. Um, the Iliad, which, so the Iliad was during the war and then the Odyssey was Homer, or yeah, him coming back, right. right? The Iliad was the war between the Greeks. Odyssey coming back. I mean, Odysseus coming back, yeah. right? Odysseus is a Greek hero. Um, the Greeks have destroyed Troy. Right. So he is on an Odyssey, a journey to return home to his wife Penelope, who has been waiting patiently for him, despite the advances of you know, I guess dozens of suitors who have been accosting her at Odysseus's house. Right. So Odysseus has this long, drawn-out, protracted journey where he goes home and then kills all these men and returns to his wife and son. And I guess everything is peachy after that. Didn't, like, I feel like in the Odyssey, he was, they were really close. And then his men, like, 
screwed up and opened the wind up or did something that caused wind and blew him back another eight years or something. I don't remember what happens, but all his soldiers die. Yeah. And it's just him that comes back. They all, they meet up with this witch at Cersei and she turns them all to pigs for some reason. (laughs) I forget the plot. The plot details escape me, but that's part of the reason why he comes back. You're familiar with... uh... Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, the movie? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful movie. It's a great movie. Yeah. The based on the Odyssey, really right? Based on the oh. Odyssey. Yeah. Big, you know, shout out to George Clooney in that one. Right. He did a fine John job. John Goodman. Yeah. Great. John Goodman, right. Um, what's his name? John Turturro, too. Yeah. Yeah. All those Johns. Yeah, a lot of Johns. I love the Johns. Um. So last time, I forget the guy who you, last time we talked, you recommended something to me, and I did not read it, but I read, but you also said H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah, H.P. Lovecraft. So I read Dagon. Dagon. Yeah. Very short. Very short. Right. H.P. Lovecraft from Rhode Island. Providence, Rhode Island. Providence, Rhode Island. And there's a festival to him. There was a yearly festival for him in providence in august i think every year really so it was just last month so this guy had an amazing way with words yeah he did he was like a super erudite and antiquarian dude what's so, an erudite erudite just means like scholarly learned okay, right. sophisticated i mean and his his use of language was obvious to me. absolutely so tell me it's been a while since i read dagon why don't you tell me about it and Man. just give me your impressions? So, give me the plot overview and then give me your impressions. I believe it starts out with like. Uh, so he was like on like he's like a drug addict, mm-hmm. right? And then he tells the story of why he's in the state, mm-hmm. and he was he was like, and this is a war thing too, I guess actually, but he becomes like. His boat that he's on gets like gets tangled up with Germans, mm-hmm. and um, he ends up in a boat floating adrift for a while. Okay, and then he ends up in this like black, you know, desolate place where no, nothing there. It stinks like rotten fish, mm-hmm. and there's like, but there's like uh, it's like, you know. Earth is, there's like land being created or something from a volcano somewhere. Mm-hmm. So he lands on this thing and he starts walking. And uh, and he walks, I feel like this, he climbs a mountain and then he comes across, maybe it is Dagon, mm-hmm. the, the uh, you know, a black, ominous creature. And it freaks him out. And he and he gets back to the boat, and he takes off, and they find him. Some some boat finds him and saves him. And uh, and but none of them believe that he saw any land or whatever. And then he ends up like I, you know, he's in a he's in his room, and the creature is coming to get him, and he jumps out the window. Yeah, excellent. So. It was the pictorial carving, however, that did the most oh. to hold me spellbound. Plainly visible across the intervening water on the count of their enormous size were an array of right. bas-reliefs whose subjects would have excited the envy of a door. 
uh, Gustave Doré, a painter. I think that these things were supposed to depict men, at least a certain sort of men, though the creatures were shown dis disporting like fishes in the water of some marine grotto, or paying homage at some monolithic shrine which appeared to be under the waves of we as well. Of their faces and forms I dare not speak in detail, for the mere remembrance makes me grow faint. Grotesque beyond the, the imagination of Poe, they were damnably human in general outline despite webbed hands and feet, shockingly wide and flabby lips, glassy, bulging eyes, and other features less pleasant to recall. Curiously enough, they seemed to have been chiseled badly out of proportion with their scenic background, for one of the creatures was shown in the act of killing a whale represented as but little larger than, I, than myself. I remarked, as I say, their grotesqueness and strange side, but in a moment decided that they were merely the imaginary, imaginary gods of some primitive fishing or seafaring tribe, whose ancestor, a tribe whose last descendant had perished years before the first ancestor of the Neanderthal man was born. So that's really interesting, and it actually touch, touches back on a point about racism that we made earlier. Mm -hmm. But one of Lovecraft's things was the um the wonder and terror are the same right there's this uncanny closeness between wonder and terror and lovecraft often takes you to this uneasy place where those two things exist inside you simultaneously and it fractures your understanding of the known world um he wrote a book called At the Mountains of Madness, and in At the Mountains of Madness, a group of university researchers go to Antarctica and they discover the, un the previously unknown remains of an ancient and decadent society of creatures that also inhabit the earth. So if you, if you see this revelation, it takes humanity out of a central place in the cosmos, and it it rocks the foundation of all of the knowledge that you have held sacred. So it's his thing was to depict humanity, not as the masters of the universe, but as um, insignificant creatures who are unable to um, orient themselves in the universe. They, they were just ignorant and oblivious to, you know, what might be lurking in the cosmic depths. So there was a, um, a phrase that Lovecraft and other cosmic horror writers used to like, and it was called lifting the veil. There's an author named Algernon Blackwood. Yeah, I probably... That was who, that was the one yeah, that you would... The story that I recommended you to read was The Willows by yeah, Algernon yeah, Blackwood. Yeah, right. And in this story, nothing actually happens. It's right. two guys going down the river, the Danube River in Europe, on a kayak trip, and nothing actually happens. They see some rustling in the, in, the, in the leaves. There's an eerie wind, and they think that they have stumbled upon an area in the world that connects to something otherworldly, and they're freaked the fuck out, and they <laughs> get out as, as soon as possible. But the story is terrifying because a lot of what great horror writers do is they don't describe what's terrifying, right? What's terrifying must be unnamed because the unnamed is always more terrifying than the quantifiable. So, well, like, what terrifies me is different than what terrifies you. So, if you ever never, yeah. if you never name it, then we're both gonna, we're both horrified, scared. right? Right? Yeah, we're both scared. 
So another point about Lovecraft is that he was a, a ridiculous racist. I don't know. If oh, really? Was. Yeah. No, I did yeah. not know that. So he once went to New York and he hated it because there were too many Asians. Oh. He wrote about how, like, he wrote poems about how there were too many, like, grotesque yellow people in the subway. And he also wrote a very derogatory poem about black people, which I will not mention because I don't want it on record. But if you Google it, you'll find it and you'll be shocked. Really? Yeah, it's terrible. But a lot of his work has to do with atavism. Do you know what atavism means? No. Have you ever read The Doc the Island of Dr. Moreau by H.G. Wells? H. G. Wells. No, but I've heard of it, for sure. So The Island of Dr. Moreau was written in the 19th century after this sort of Darwinistic science explosion. And this mad scientist on the island, Dr. Moreau, is vivisecting animals, which means he's cutting them open and doing experiments on them. And he's, like, creating these animal-human hybrids that are subhuman. So atavism is the fear of regression to an earlier primitive or primal state. So Lovecraft was partly motivated, his racism is present in his stories when he writes about the terror of being, you know, um, descended from oh. or related to some sort of deformed humanistic monster, right? Uh, some sort of deformed humanistic monster like the fish people. There's a famous story called The Shadow Over Innsmouth where this guy goes to Innsmouth, uh, Massachusetts, and he notices that the people are all really weird. They're like these bug-eyed fish people. They're very like cur, they don't like socialize. They all have these secret rituals. And it turns out that all these people are actually like half amphibious fish people and they live in the ocean. And the people there are actually like turning into these fish people and going back into the ocean. So it's kind of, it can be read as a metaphor for his fear that America is going to be taken over by minorities like Asians, you know, the Asians that he was irritated by in the subway in New York. So when you read literature, and if you really want to understand the literature, is that should, I mean, you need to take the writer, him, him or herself, into context of the... It's, a, it's kind of a debate. Um, in the in the academy, we often read that there was a famous scholar named Roland Barthes who said the author is dead. Right? We don't need the author because the text speaks to us. The text um, can be read in any cultural moment, and it will apply to that cultural moment, but probably in different ways. Right. So there are actually two ways to read literature. You can go with Roland Barthes and say that the author is dead. I'm going to read this Shakespeare play. Um, you know, I'm going to read Roma, Romeo and Juliet now without any knowledge or understanding of, um, you know, Florentine political alliances, and I'm going to take what I get from it. Or I can look back into the history and read, you, you know, narratives of the Medicis and other uh, Italian nobility and also read about how those examples might have been used by Shakespeare in order to indict a particular um, characteristic of his time period and I'm going to take that historical knowledge and then read the play. But either way, they're both valid approaches to reading. In art too, right? I mean, you could do the same thing with any art, like a, like a painting. Yeah, absolutely. You could do the same thing. Absolutely. So, 
it's interesting because what I, you know, I didn't know all this about H.P. Lovecraft, but I, I read, I think I, I, you know, I read something where it talked about his family and it seemed like there was a mental illness. There is, there must've been. Right. If he were alive today, you know, he wasn't the type of guy that was very antisocial, but also very prolific in his written output. So if he were alive today, he would be the guy that hangs out in his mom's basement and gets on <laughs> internet forums. Yeah, and goes right. On these freaking screeds. Because he was like, I feel like he was writing to someone in some. That's how he get discovered. Like he was writing letters to yeah. the editor of some yeah. journals or something. He had a circle of friends that were all um, that were all writers. There's a guy named Clark Ashton Smith that was one of his disciples who is also a, a great cosmic horror writer in his own right and they would trade stories this was also a time when like you know literary magazines were big so he was writing to magazines like weird tales and trying to get his work included in there and they were all you know like a writer's group they were all giving each other feedback on each other's stories and suggesting revisions and all that but so yeah. there you go. Yeah. He was a keyboard warrior. Yeah. But the thing is, back in the day, a lot of people were quote-unquote keyboard warriors because you had to be able to write letters in order to communicate. So you would develop your writing skills. Like the keyboard warrior in the 19th century would blow the keyboard warrior of the 21st century out of the water because they had to read and write and develop literacy skills in order to function. You know, They couldn't open a laptop and get on Microsoft Word and, you know, have autocorrect or, you know, any other type of editing programs. Like, they were learning by reading and writing, and it showed in their writing. I mean, it seems like you're... eloquent writers. Right, I was going to say, like, your average mm-hmm. letter from 100 years from ago... From a Civil War soldier yeah, to his wife. was amazing. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. It was very... Um, you know, ornate and formal and respectful. It was a very interesting style of discourse, a very Baroque, you know, like the the formality of the Victorian period. It was kind of enshrined in the written text that it produced. So have we devolved in 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 our as a society probably yeah that's what that's what harold bloom says do you know harold bloom no he is he teaches at yale he's one of the most he's probably the literary critic like the top literary critic but he's also like old and curmudgeon so anything that's new he's like not cool with it but anything that's old is awesome Mm -hmm. so he would say and others who are more traditional would be like yes we've definitely devolved and i think i agree with that we have devolved because like i said before things are done for us like when you go online and you read the news that panders to a particular grade level you know you got to make sure that thing that when I was a copywriter you know I would write for a particular grade level they would say write at a ninth grade reading level so that everybody can read it and there's nothing wrong with that but if you don't push your students or if you don't self-motivate in order to read something more challenging then you're going to be stuck at that level and you're going to have the problems that come with that level of uh, intellect so what's the difference between uh, J.K. Rowling and um got airplanes flying by right now yeah. flying into Pease Air Force Base yeah um, what's the difference between like J.K. Rowling and, and 
yeah. Mark Twain. Or, so the, the quality of the writing is the main thing. Like if you read a Harry Potter book, you can look at the book and you can see how the imagination is wonderful. Uh, the world building is incredible, as you can see in sort of the film adaptations and the enduring longevity of the series. But the actual writing is not intellectually challenging. So like, there's not going to be any new vocabulary words. There's not going to be a sentence construction that shows you the capability of the English language. There's also, um, you know, um, the world of Harry Potter is a very black and white world, right? Harry is good, Voldemort is evil. But when you look at um, a work by Mark Twain or a, a postmodern work of literature, there's a lot of moral ambiguity described in ambivalent, vexing terms. And that is more in sync with what you encounter in the real world, where people aren't good the gray or bad, area. you know? I mean, I would argue, though, that Harry Potter does break a lot of rules, mm -hmm. right? To Go ahead. To do the, to to beat Voldemort or mm -hmm. whatever. I mean, he's always sort of in trouble. Yeah. Um, although when you, you know, even though he's breaking the rules, you know that he is maybe morally mm -hmm. doing right. the right thing. Right. 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 Um, so, I mean, compare Harry Potter to Hamlet, though. Mm-hmm. You know, and you have Hamlet who, you know, the play f encourages you to root for Hamlet. And of course you're going to root for Hamlet. But by the end of the play, Hamlet is going to kill, you know, maybe at least four people, you know. Right. And still, like, there's a level of moral ambiguity to, to that that doesn't exist in Harry Potter. And which one is more applicable to a real life situation that you were that you would encounter if you were a soldier in Afghanistan or if you were an executive at a Fortune 500 company where the management is making a decision that's going to screw you know millions of people out of certain health insurance or something like that so does George Martin fall George R. R Martin yeah does he fall closer to the JK Rowling yeah he does he does does but now his characters seem to be um more living in the gray i mean definitely see because i read i i've read you know i don't know how much there is but i read the first set of books or whatever he wrote i read um, one of them i read a storm of swords okay and at that point everyone that i liked had died so yeah right and i was and, gonna move on and really in it like from what i said nobody's good Nobody's good. Nobody is good. Yeah. You know, they're all yeah. like, they're all um, bad. But I have noticed because I, and I came to the Game of Thrones party way late. Mm -hmm. um, Did you watch the TV shows? Well, too? so no, I've, well, so I read the, I think I read a thing. I read the book, maybe a song of fire and ice or something. Song, I feel yeah. like it might be what it's called. Ice and fire. Ice and fire yeah. or something. I read that. And then I watched the first two seasons, just recently, just in the last few months. Now, it's interesting because... Dude, if you want to watch that, I'll come over and watch it with you. Really? All right, all right. I, it's been a while since I watched them, but I feel like, um, you know, I skipped a bunch of episodes. I probably even skipped a season. Right. But I still feel like I know exactly what's going on. Right. Well, know? so it's interesting to me, though, because in the 
you know, and if you've never seen it, I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but in the book, the you hate um, Jamie Lannister mm-hmm. and the Lan. I mean, yeah, you, you just hate them. They're yeah. rotten. Yeah. After reading that and then watching the show, Jamie Lannister is not is he's he's like much more charismatic. Yeah, absolutely. In the show. Absolutely. You know, you're, you're like, oh man, he's not that bad. Yeah. You know, and the dwarf guy is like, he's the best character. He's in the, the show. best of the thing yeah. so far. Yeah. You know, I mean, the 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 sister, you hate her just as much mm-hmm. as you did in the book, but like. Jamie Lannister stands out to me as, you know, in the book, you just hate him. Mm-hmm. But in the in the show, you're like, oh, you know. I mean, he pushed a kid through the window. But, yeah, who cares? But, yeah, like, I mean, I, you know, he doesn't it's seem weird. that bad. He's kind of, you know, he's very charismatic. You like him. He's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. Um, yeah. So he, but he, you would, you know, he's, you, you think he's more towards I, the JK. I think so. And, and it, honestly, I think like, you know, what gets canonized, what becomes literature is always going to rightly or wrongly um, go against sort of the tide of popular culture and popular opinion, right? If you're too popular, you're damned. Because if you are you're accessible to everybody, accessible to the masses, then you are not elite or sophisticated and, you know, like I can't think of sometimes it breaks the mold, like Dickens obviously breaks the mold because he was infinitely popular in his day and there would be midnight reading parties. You know, he wrote, he was paid by the word. So he wrote copiously, <laughs> right? <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. His it's children like still manage his estate. Like he's, he made enough money to where he was able to support generations of descendants, you right. know, like two or three, uh, Two, three, four, five generations of Dickenses are continuing to manage his estate, and you know, they've got plenty of money. So good for him. Yeah, but yeah. There's a. I, we might have talked about this before, but there is a grandson or great grandson of his that goes around and reads mm. a Christmas Carol and does it as like a really entertaining. Great. Um, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but so Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, like all that stuff is going to be looked at skeptically because it is written for the masses. What about like, um, I mean, so if you compared the old, you know, you had people writing plays, Mm -hmm. you had people writing books, but now you have people writing for TV, yeah. Is that more like writing for a play? Or is that like, if you were to be a a TV writer, mm-hmm. I mean, that must right. have a different... Yeah. Or like a screenplay writer for a movie. Right. I mean, we have different ideas of what high art is, right? Film is high art because there are auteurs, right? Individuals with expressive, unique visions on how cinematography should work or how the film should push this experimental boundary. But in TV, you don't have that. So if you're writing a movie script, you know, I think it's easier to be high art. If you're writing a TV script, it's not really, uh, you know, it's not really in the realm of like high sophisticated art because it's going to, you know, X hundreds of thousands of households, you know, on a weeknight who want to fulfill, you know, their craving for entertainment. But if you have a movie, if you're a Kubrick or, you know, like... Tarantino. 
or a Tarantino or like I um, mean because he did he when Tarant I just say Tarantino because he's of like our mm -hmm. more of ours than Stan I mean even though right. Stanley Kubrick was right in my but like Tarantino didn't I mean maybe he did make movies but he he like pushes the limit absolutely absolutely yeah Tarantino has a lot in common with revenge tragedies because if you look at like the Kill Bill series right. and you look at um, Hamlet or the Spanish tragedy, you have a character, whether it's the woman from the Kill Bill series or Hamlet or the main character in the Spanish tragedy, justice is unavailable to, the, to him. And the um, audience gets this vicarious pleasure by watching the, the main character go out into the world and get even or rectify all of the agents that prevent them from feeling satisfaction or, you know, from uh, the, the things that have prevented them from getting a fair stake. What about, so, um, journalism, like in, in, you know, the press, is, how, how long have people been, you know, when you're reporting, you write a different type of way, right? Mm -hmm. Bob Woodward yeah, writing absolutely. this book about Donald Trump right now. Yeah, it's much um, more conversational. It's anecdotal. You know, there's research done, but it's not like the type of research that would require you to go through a review process. It's like, you know, maybe going back and looking some stuff up and putting it in there and rather than like sending your book out to X amount of people who are also experts in the field, getting revisions back and then pumping it out again in order to try and be as accurate as possible and to accommodate for as many uh, different perspectives as possible. Has the press changed? I'm going to say no. The press has not changed. Because if you think of, if, I don't know how much you know about the historical conditions in the early 20th century, but that's when the concept of fake news, right? Propaganda always existed. Right. But that's when fake news was really institutionalized. Because back then, you had two newspaper barons, William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, who were competing for a share of the market. And in order for them to beat the other, they would get these sensational stories, and they would run these sensational stories that were exaggerated. They played off fear-mongering. They um, were instrumental in the start of the Spanish-American War hmm. because the battleship, the Maine, exploded in Cuba. And without really knowing what happened, they went ahead and blamed the Spanish for blowing up the ship. <laughs> and it's probably more likely that, um, you know, there was an accident on the ship and it exploded. So the newspapers came out and ran all these stories about the Spanish and what the Spanish were doing to the Cubans and talking about how they were mistreating, um, you know, the Cuban people. So all the people in America were like, oh, you know, we can't allow this to happen so close to our territory. We need to send our troops out there and stamp them out. And that's what, you know, Teddy Roosevelt took his Rough Riders down to San Juan Hill. And there's that iconic photo of Teddy Roosevelt with his pistols yeah. charging up the hill. So the media started a war in, you know, at the very beginning of the 19th century because of fake news. Interesting. And it's been with us ever since. So no, the press hasn't changed, but our delivery of it, right? We're closer to it than ever before because we all have one of these in our pockets. Well, it's also interesting because I feel like sometimes the press uh, likes to give off an air of we are really important and, uh, but also like virtuous. Yeah. 
Yeah. So maybe not as virtuous as, I mean, not no, you know, there could be no one live up to the expectation of, you know. Um, but if you're starting wars based on, you know, uh, fake news. Yeah. Or, and, and today, I mean, I, but I think that there are people out there that are trying to, you know, do good things with journalism. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's just easier to pander to the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. So we see more of that, but the good stuff is still out there. You know, there are solid news outlets like the guardian and the independent who try to, and I like NPR, you know, even though I know they're biased, but if you look at NPR and you look at CNN or NBC or Fox news, the format is different, right? Because you can go on NPR, and even if you're a conservative, they're still going to sit down and shut up for 15 minutes while you put your viewpoint across, you know? Even if you disagree with NPR's liberal bias, you can't disagree with the format in which they present their content. It's not two people screaming at each other at for, all. No. for a few minutes. What's, what's the Guardian and the Independent? They're both British. I think they're both British papers, but that's why I like them, because they're British. Mm -hmm. You know, like they'll look at stuff in America without a conservative or liberal slant. Right. I think the independent was the, the newspaper that broke Ed, the Edward Snowden story. Really? Yeah. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think that's the case. Which is sort of an interesting thought about, and I don't know as much as I probably should know about him, but I mean, this was a guy, right? Who leaked secrets. Mm hmm about the government, mm -hmm. but really this, you know, that brings up an interesting debate, I feel like, about what the government, you know, they hide from the people, and how much should there be secrets? Yeah. And was the guy doing a good thing, or was he not doing a I good thing? I think he was doing a good thing. You think he was? I do, yeah. Because what did he leak? He leaked the existence of an NSA data collecting program that um, was... I think it was the NSA could record phone conversations right. and were recording phone conversations between ordinary regular, Americans. Regular people. And there's no reason for them to do that. Right. So it's interesting to me, and this is politics, I guess, but a lot of people that probably would, would want more freedom but don't like him. Yeah. They look at him as a traitor. Yeah. Right? The government has a really bad record of persecuting whistleblowers right so um during the obama administration i was working for a company called nyse governance services new york stock exchange governance services and this was a independent like think tank it wasn't really a think tank i mean we were a business we were selling stuff but there was an arm of the company that was more independent and just did like research and news gathering and they were really big on whistleblowers because the company was tracking um, the relationship between governmental regulatory entities, the Department of Justice, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and um, uh, publicly owned companies. And they were tracking what companies did wrong, how they got caught, and how much they were fined. And then they would disseminate that information in order to sell ethics and compliance solutions to big-ass companies which often meant like putting some diversity training or some anti-corruption training in your company so that when somebody fucked up, 
you could go to court and say, hey, it's not our company. It's not our right. culture. Just it's one just guy. one guy. Right. So it's like um, morality insurance. Right. But we tracked what happened with whistleblowers. And there were several whistleblowers that were unjustly persecuted during the Obama administration. There was this one guy named Jeffrey Sterling. You remember this? this no, I don't know this. I don't think so. This dude worked for the CIA, and he sold some some. He was in Iran, I think, and he sold some like shitty nuclear plans to the Iranians because we wanted to get them off track. We wanted to get their nuclear program off track, so we gave them bad instructions. And he was part of this. And then he came back and he talked to a reporter named James Risen about what he did. So the information that he gave was declassified. So he technically didn't break any laws when he gave this declassification, declassified information after the fact to this reporter. But the government still put him in prison anyway because they made him look bad. So what did they put him in prison for? I don't remember. Huh. I mean, it was some, it was some charge that was like a legalistic punishment for him. There was another guy. I don't know how you pronounce his last name. It starts with a K. His name was like John Kirakow, and he was the guy who, I think it might have been actually during the Bush administration, but he thought that waterboarding was unethical. So he went to the media and told them that we were doing waterboarding. So this was where the, because nobody knew about waterboarding. Nobody knew about waterboarding. So then he went to prison because he told everybody what we were doing. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. And then uh, Bradley Manning, Bradley Chelsea Manning, right. you know him? Or right. Her, her, right. Her, uh, I mean, I've heard of her now. Right. Yeah. She told, she gave footage of Americans like killing civilians as collateral damage kind of on accident during a bombing run. Yeah. And, you know, brought it to, the, to our attention that this was going on in the Middle East. And she got thrown in prison, you know. So it was like years. footage that she took? I, I guess she took it, you know. I don't know. I don't remember exactly how she got it. But I think it was a video of, like, bombs falling on a village and killing, like, innocent people. Right. Which you must know. I mean, he, well, you would think everybody would, think, would know. Yeah, everybody knows. In but a to war, see it, you know, is important. Right. Oh, yeah. So it, I, I think about this a lot recently because there's a, you know, in Rochester, the town, one town over. Yeah. This guy, James Foley. Oh, yeah. Um, he, where's he from? He's from here, right? He Well, I think he was born somewhere else, but he grew up in Rochester. Out. Okay. And so his parents live in Rochester. They still live there? They do. I think his dad is a doctor or something. Um, they, so he, you know, was in Syria and been kidnapped a couple times, but he was a guy who was beheaded yeah. by Jadi John, or, or he that might have been the, the first guy, you know. And he was right from Rochester, New Hampshire. And he's already, I feel like, been forgotten. I feel like things go by so quick. He was born in Evanston, Illinois. Grew up in Wolfboro, New, yeah. New Hampshire. Uh, his parents are Diane and John of Rochester. Yeah. He went to, he had an MFA from University of Massachusetts Amherst and graduated from journalism school at Northwestern. So they do like a, a race, a running, you know, like a road race every year. So I'm going to do it. This It's like October. 
Um, I'm going to go do it. And they raise money for journalists. I think like, so it's journalists can, you know, not learn. It's not called self-defense, but like, like survival situational skills. awareness yeah, or something, something like, like how not to get yourself in this position right something like that you know which is an interesting uh yeah i'm glad that they do that i fully support that. yeah i think it's important i've seen posters for his advertisements for that run in barrington right so yours truly is running good for I've, you, been, I've been i've been running to go do it but i think it's an important thing i think so too and because thing you know think about like I've watched recently some things by, you know, Restrepo and, and all yeah. by Junger, Sebastian yeah. Junger. And then this, he did a documentary on Syria and um, basically the birth of ISIS. We need these people to go do this, you know, to these places so we know what's going on. Yeah. Even though people, you know, we do. don't want to dig in to really know what's going on. But because uh, it's crazy. You know, Bashir al-Assad. Killing his own people. I mean, it's documented. He's killing his own people, uh, which is in turn pushing them all out into, you know. The refugee crisis. Refugee yeah. crisis, uh, which causes all these other problems. But, the, you know, it feels like the real problem is this guy, if he wasn't killing his own people, they wouldn't want to leave. Would make you want to leave, right? That would make me want to leave. Make me want to leave, right? too. And so to think how lucky we really are at this yeah. point. It's very true. Um, that we weren't born in Syria. Which, there's no reason why we weren't born in Syria. Yeah. We happened to get a lucky stroke of fortune, and here we are in America in a modern time where we can, you know, we have good medical care and a system that generally works for a lot of people. Yeah, and even people that have in America that have it bad, it's not like... It's not like you're a freaking, you know, woman in you know, wherever, Middle East. Right. Or, you know, they, they show this one family in this, this documentary I just watched, and, and it's in Syria, and the guy, you know, the guy's government is trying to kill him first and his family, and they're bombing him. And then the Taliban comes in and is messing with him. He's just like, you know, and then he tries, so he tries to get his family to Greece, and this dude can't win. You know, everybody, like, everybody is messing with him. He's just trying to live too. Yeah. You know, um, you know the things that I get to battle with on a daily basis are not like this. Not because the, if the Taliban, you know, I mean, they're insane. And uh, sometimes, you know, when I think about really what it would be like to live under Taliban rule, it's frightening. It is frightening. You know? So these are the things I think about. Right, James. To think that you could be killed for having a particular belief, smoking a cigarette, or being a particular type of person. Yeah, you don't have right. any control over how you came out of the womb. Right. You know, but you could come out and you could be like, oh, you know, like you don't fit with the paradigm. Like you either you must conform or die, and you have to prove that you conform. Right. It's insane. It's crazy. It's uh, it's horrible. So very lucky. I feel I consider myself very lucky. Um, to be born here in Dover, too, New Hampshire. <laughs> I'm sitting here in, in the in the barn with you in my old house. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's crazy that you've had this house for this long. Yeah. This is, uh, so for, for anybody listening, we're sitting in a house. This house was built in like 1870-ish, 1860-something, 1870. Um, 
scene. If you think about what this house has been around, like yeah, to, to go through the depression, the depression, civil rights, two world wars, the big flu epidemic, um, a lot of crazy stuff in a in a town. You know, that's pretty interesting. Like Dover, New Hampshire, is a pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, a pretty interesting place. I mean, it's settled in sixteen. 23 i think seventh the seventh settlement in the country seventh oldest settlement yeah. in the country you know um well, kind of a lot of this is real america right here yeah this is like the land of puritans <laughs> this is right yeah the land uh, of the puritans have you ever been to roanoke in your travels down in uh roanoke virginia no North like Carolina? uh in yeah the old settlement where all the people disappeared no, i've never been there on the it's like out in the outer banks heard of it I've been to the Outer Banks, but I never went to the Roanoke. Yeah, I've been there. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I mean, we went five or six years ago. Like, we went to the Outer Banks and just happened upon. Did you have fun there? Yeah. Cool. Were you, did you go to Kitty Hawk? We went through there. We went through the whole thing. Nice. It was not the greatest weather when we were there. What time and of year were you there? It was in April. Okay. Um, and we couldn't eat. We actually so didn't. was it warm enough yet? It was cool, but there was a big storm coming. Oh, yeah. So okay. it was so stormy that we couldn't go to Ocracoke Island, which was the furthest, like, one out, I think. And that you have to, like, like the bridge. I think there, there's a bridge, or you take a ferry or something. I think it was a bridge. You couldn't go because the storm was so bad. Like, it was shut down. So, but we did have a good time. Nice. Yeah, it's That's a nice awesome. place. It's a great place. I have a... Good friend that used to be a hang gliding instructor, yeah. in Kitty Hawk, and he lived in like this piece of crap beach house that was owned by his employer, which is probably some violation of like a worker's rights. But we would go up there and uh, get some like free hang gliding lessons. So you've been hang gliding? Yeah, I've been hang gliding. That trip, we went on this kayak trip, and it was me and three other dudes. It was um, my friend that lived in. That was the hang gliding instructor and then two other guys. And we went on this kayak trip at night. This dude had access to these kayaks that were owned by his like recreation company. So we got in these kayaks and we went down the river at night and there were all these fireflies and like there was glowing jellyfish in the water. Wow. So we were like, oh man, we're going to swim. So we, we swam in our underwear and the guy who had the car keys tipped the kayak that had his shorts in it. So we, his shorts, we lost his shorts and we lost the keys. So um, we had, luckily we had taken two cars and uh, one guy still had his car keys, but we had to like get something from the car that we didn't have keys to. So we were in a parking lot in the Outer Banks at like 1230 at night and like there are people like missing clothes and shit. So we're all basically in our drawers. And uh, one of my friends is like, all right, this looks really weird. But I've heard that like, if you call the police, they'll help you get into <laughs> Yes. So you guys, I need you guys to hide and I'll deal with the, I'll call the police and I'll get them to slim Jim into the car. So this guy called the cops and the cop shows up. It's a lady cop. <laughs> and it's this teenage kid in his underwear. He's soaking wet. And he's like, yeah, I went for a swim in the river. You know, I just wanted to like swim with the jellyfish and I fucked up. I lost my key. Can you help me get into my car? And she did it. She unlocked the car. He got some stuff. 
And then we went back into the other guy's car and went home. Nice. It was crazy. It's hilarious. Yeah. What's hang gliding like? Is it scary? Where I was hang gliding isn't scary because there are these hills and you basically run up, you know, you gut up the hill with your hang glider and you jump off the hill. So it's not like you're skydiving or anything, right. you know, like, yeah, you could definitely get hurt, but you're not going to fall 30 feet, you know. How high are you off the ground? Mm-hmm. You know, you can go anywhere from like a sh- 15, maybe 15 to 25 feet. Yeah. And it's these sand hills. So when right. you if when you fall, you know, like if you fall, you're not landing on hard grass. You know, you're landing on the sand. You're going to get scratched up. But it's interesting because the body of a hang glider is very solid. You know, it's a metal apparatus with the wings attached to it. And you're strapped in there like holding the metal. And it's like, you know, artificial wings that your body is connected to. So you jump and you can feel the draft catch the hang glider. And then you're just kind of there, you know. It's cool. Right. Um, I think I'd like to go hang gliding. It's really cool. I think it's safe enough. Right. Um, so this week we were supposed to have our friend Fred yeah. on. Fred, I don't know how to say his last name. Do you know? Nope. In Swedish, phone, Fred. Swedish Fred. Swedish Fred. Swedish uh, Fred. Who? Will, this is episode 10, by the way. Okay. We made it to the... Um, Decafa. Yeah, the tenth episode. The tenth episode. Deca. Uh, so hopefully next episode we'll have Swedish Fred, who I don't really know a lot about, other than I believe he's from Sweden. Yeah, he teaches history at UNH. At UNH. He teaches Arab history. Right. I'm very much forward to looking looking forward to Fred. Because he is such a quietly cosmopolitan individual. Yeah. He's a Swedish guy who lived in Chicago, who now teaches at University of New Hampshire, who trains Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and has written a dissertation on Arab history and works on electrical, uh, like, electricity and geopolitics in the Middle East. Right. And technology. Yeah. Yeah, he explained it to me like the other day. I yeah. was like, whoa. Yeah. Um, and he lives right up the street from me. So I'm very interested. In- I'm very interested in this too. I feel like like I'm going to look at his CV and then I'll come with like some questions to ask. Good, him. good. I'll be able to like turn on my academic mode. Yes. And get him to like reveal some answers. Good, because that is, ever since I've met him, I've wondered how... A Swedish guy ends up studying Middle Eastern history and living and tr- teaching at UNH. Yep. It's going to be interesting. It's, it's going to be good. Very interesting. Uh, he's been sick the last couple times. Right. we tried to do it. He's been avoiding us. He's been avoiding me. <laughs> he's, he's afraid to commit to hanging out in my barn. Yeah. He just wants to stay home and have his girlfriend make him chicken soup. Right. He sends me pictures with him and Kleenexes. Yeah. I put that one in my spank bank. For <laughs> You're going to regret sending that. Right. Right. Uh, so there you go, people. Next week, we don't normally announce, but I'm announcing it because if he doesn't, if he bails on me again, we're going to publicly shame him. Kick him out of Port City. Yeah. We're going to kick him out of uh, New England. Yeah. New England. Because I'm like the Sweden. king of New England. That's true. Um, there's not a lot, you know. You have a uh, a real primogenitorial claim to this area. 
not exactly sure what that means, but I feel it like mean, I do. it means you have an ancestral claim. Yeah, on your family. It's a lot of family, yeah. for sure. The the law family, you know, is yeah. They make the law around here. <laughs> yep. So thanks, man, for uh, for coming back and sitting with fun. me, and and thanks once again enlightening me on uh, on things. Uh, you know, I feel so stupid because you ask me these questions, and I know that there's more to say about them, and there's you know things that I want to articulate. But yeah, but you don't I, know what I I'm going to ask. Where I, I stop where I stop, you know. Right, and you yeah, don't know. Like I don't like. I mean, this is sort of like I feel like what I what we do is just two dudes sitting in it's the true. bar and having a conversation. It's true. It's not like I'm giving you questions because I don't even know what the questions are. I know, but the thing is, is like when I think about this, I think about like my committee chairman stumbling on this podcast <laughs> and being like, "Oh, you were wrong about that. Oh, you were wrong about this too." I'm like, ah. Do well, we know who your committee chairman is? Yeah, I know who he is. Maybe we could get him to come talk to me. Okay. Do you think that's a... He's, like, a, he's a busy man, but... Really? We'll see what happens. Um, you know, I once, I too once studied English, you know, at yeah. uh, the University of New Hampshire. Yeah. Mr. Chairman. Is it Mr.? It's yeah, a Mr. He's a okay. Mr. All right. It's not Charles Simic, is it? No, is but Charles Simic. He still? just retired. Oh, he did. Yeah, yeah. He was like a poet laureate, right, of America. Right. Yeah, he's it's pretty big, amazing. A big deal. Um, my professor this semester, a guy named Michael Ferber, was a good friend of his, and uh, I heard a lot about him, but I didn't know him personally. I never crossed paths with him. So he's in his seventies, and he's not necessarily taking an active role in teaching. And I'm also in a different program than him. He's a uh, teaching fiction writers and I'm, you know, being trained by literary critics. Yeah. Poet, poet, poets, actually. He's teaching poets. Ferber? No. Oh, Simic. Simic. Right. Yeah. Which is the same. He was a poet. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't like, he didn't write other things, I don't think, did he? I don't think so. But he was an immigrant, I think. Right. Uh, his Jack name, or something? Yeah, or? I don't think his name is Charlie Simic. Like, it might be something close to that, but I think his, ma- his name is, like, Americanized. Right. I think that does sound somewhat yeah. familiar to me. It's interesting. Um, I would love to, anytime you're, anybody from your department wants to come and hang out with me. and, and There might be somebody. And field my crazy questions. <laughs> There's a dude who just got here who's 43 years old or something like that. He's studying Shakespeare adaptations. He was the... Uh, high school department chair and wrestling coach at some high school in Florida. Yeah. So I like invited him to come and train. Yeah. And I think I'm going to get him nice. at some point. So you'll meet this guy. And good. He'd be a good person to, yeah. to podcast with. I would love to. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, brother. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Hope uh, I hope you found it interesting because um, we're going to keep doing it. So even yeah. if you didn't find it interesting, we're gonna try. There's yeah, right? I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try. I think it's good. I think. I mean, people have listened to. We put out the first. Is it on Facebook? Five. Yeah. Tell it's me on, how to find it. You can find us on Facebook, straythecoursepodcast.com. Okay. Um, so we're on the internet, but we have a Facebook page, in Instagram, um, iTunes, all your regular podcast places. You know, Stitcher, all those things. Um, if you do listen to it, make sure you give me a review. Even if you hated it, don't lie. Yeah. Give it five stars. Well, if you um, hate it, at least give constructive criticism. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm, all, I'm definitely Which open to that. Which is fine. Uh, people have liked the issue, because I did an episode, two episodes with my grandmother uh, that are pretty interesting. 
to say the least. And then we've released an episode with Glenn Kasabian. Oh, nice. On his trip to Kilimanjaro. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think today we just released an episode of where he had just come back from Peru. He did uh, Machu Picchu. And it was cool. It was really cool. It's a world traveler. Yeah. So I'm interested in uh, in all these things. Um, so yeah, check it out at straythecoursepodcast.com. Um, thanks, everybody. Peace. Peace.